0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everyone. Welcome in. We are in week three of our study in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and man, this has been a fun study, a great way to kick off this series. So the goal is going to be today we're going to finish up the conversation that Rob and I are having, and the next week we will have a special guest in. Uh, Rob, do you kind of want to just give a quick preview of that, of what the, the special guest element is going to be in the shows?
1: Yeah, at the end of today's conversation, we're going to discuss the sea and those kind of themes and motifs, and we're going to kind of leave it hanging, going, hey, there's so much more here that you need to understand the background of, it." we're going to bring an Old Testament scholar in who's uh, very proficient in the imagery of the Old Testament sea and metaphors and dragons and beasts and gods and things like that. And I want to encourage you that at the beginning of that conversation with him, it's going to kind of go really deep into this ancient world themes and just stick with it. Because even if you don't retain everything that we, we discussed there, uh, the end of the conversation, I think is going to be worth it because we're going to take it to the gospel market and say, okay, here's how this is playing out in the gospel market. And you're going to go, oh my goodness, this is awesome. So looking forward to that conversation with Dr. Broadhurst.
0: Yeah. And even for me, looking over the, the outline of what we're going to talk about in that show, I'm not familiar with a lot of what's happening there. So I, I'm expecting myself to just kind of be a sideline person. And uh, I'm really excited about this because I'm, I'm not sure yet how this connects to the gospel of Mark based on the notes. Uh, you've
1: assured me it does. Uh, oh, it's, but it's I, phenomenal. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Most people are going to go, okay, wait a minute. I don't know even what to do with this. So we're going to help you process what to do with it a little bit, but you're still going to probably walk away going, I'm not sure I'm comfortable right now, but that's okay. So, <laughs> yeah, it's be be be.
0: Uncomfortability is good, right? Yeah, it is. Good. All right, cool. Well, let's let's uh, continue on with Mark. And so yeah. we've talked a lot in the first two episodes about structure and just how to read the book. We're not going line by line. We're not going chapter right. by chapter. It's not a breakdown. You've done that in the previous episode. So if, if you're interested in actually going through the book of Mark, scroll back a couple of years in episodes and, and Rob by himself just gives more of a lecture and breaks down each chapter. So you could do that.
1: Yeah. And these podcast like what, 10 to 25 minutes long. So yeah,
0: yeah. one
1: chapter at a time, basically. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a really good way to kind of breeze through that stuff. So what do you want to do today, Rob?
1: I really want to kind of delve deeply into how Mark puts his stories together. We talked about the sandwiches where he'll tell a story and then tell another story, interrupting it and go back to the first story. We did that last time. But let's look at the kind of the structure, of the way Mark is laid out also. So.
0: so let's look at some other points that you know will help us uh, understand the gospel of Mark. Let's start with this. How much does looking at something like the date of the writing matter to understanding it? Like when, when
1: the composition itself actually happened? Is that a huge deal? I don't think it is. And here's the reason why I don't think it is. At the end of the day, we're still going to take Mark chapter 1 through 16 and say, this is the gospel. This is what we have. and let's read it and study it. And what does it mean? Does it really matter what date it was written? Now, I think too many Bible studies spend too much time on things like this, informing themselves of background information that at the bottom line doesn't matter. Now, evangelicals might push back a little bit. Oh, it's really important because it was written too late. How do we know if it's trustworthy or not? Look, it's inspired scripture. We all believe that. We're not debating that. Can we move on? So what happens with Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular is There's statements in each one of the three Gospels where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Mark Mm -hmm. 13 for for the Gospel of Mark. The temple is going to be destroyed. And evangelicals are like, it has to have been written before that because Jesus is prophesying. Mm -hmm. And the more liberals are going to go, no, that was added in after AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. It's material that Jesus didn't actually say. It was made up. So this is where evangelicals are going to go. It matters. It matters. It, It has to be pre 70. I do think Mark was probably pre-70. I think it was. And Matthew and Luke are using Mark, and they probably might even be post-70. It doesn't matter. But I think we do date Mark in the early in the early to mid-60s, uh, which is 30 years after the death of Jesus. So if we have Jesus' death in 30 AD, 65 or so for the Gospel of Mark, no problem at all. Matthew and Luke may have been after 70, but it, it doesn't matter. And ultimately, no, it does, I don't think it's, it's of great significance.
0: And so just to use this kind of as the catalyst to how we're going to approach uh, this in general in this whole series through the rest of the year, even when we get to the letters or something, you, you, I, I'm thinking of something like a Galatians where it's like, okay, did, was this early in Paul's ministry? Was this late in his Paul's ministry? How does it relate to the events of Acts chapter 10 and 15? It's like, okay, that's an interesting conversation, but ultimately when it's written, it like we still have the text in
1: front of us. Right. Yeah. And, and I do think with, things, with, with letters, because a letter is an occasional document, right? Mm-hmm. A letter is with Responding to something that just happened or something that's about to happen, so the date kind of matters a little bit as much as we can figure it out. Okay, if if Galatians was the first letter, then it makes sense why Paul's doing this. But ultimately, I think the point is that uh, you just kind of reiterated, yeah, okay, let's move on. Are we ready to go? So, I did a a course at a seminary one time, and I had to submit the syllabus to the to the president to the faculty on the Gospel of John. And this question of the authorship of the gospel of John is a huge debate. Who is this beloved disciple? Because he never calls himself John. He calls himself Mm -hmm, the beloved mm -hmm. disciple. Uh, Who who is this guy? And I had nothing in all of my presentations or the syllabus on authorship. And the president pushed back on me and said, well, you have to discuss authorship. It's the gospel of John. And I said, look, I said, we only have this many class hours to discuss Mm -hmm. the gospel, the contents of the gospel of John. Why would I take that up? with a debate on the authorship that we're not going to settle anyways. And mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of the day, we're still going to read Gospel of John 1 through 22 and go, this is what we have. What do we do with it? It doesn't matter who wrote it ultimately. So that's kind of, you know, and, and the president goes, you're really pragmatic, aren't you? I'm like, <laughs> well, I, I guess that's a good thing here. So, yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't think ultimately it matters. Yeah, you know, I'm writing a commentary on the book of revelation and it's great because the author of the book of revelation calls himself, John. So I can mm-hmm. just call him John all day long. Yeah. Yeah. The conservatives are going to go, Oh, it's the apostle John. The liberals are going to go, it's John, some other, and I don't have to worry about debating it. It's, it's kind of fun. I don't have to worry about this, but it's not that significant for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So
1: people say, Oh, it was written by an eyewitness. Therefore it's more trustworthy. It's like, folks, we think these traditions were handed down from, from people to people to people and Luke says I carefully investigated everything from the beginning they're trustworthy it doesn't matter Luke wasn't an eyewitness yet he's mm-hmm. one of the gospel writers
0: okay so dating authorship you know it's it's interesting but not vital for the gospels how important is it to know like the audience who the books were written to so like you know whoever mark is or whoever's writing whoever gospel account that is
1: who is his audience how does that uh, help us There are certain things like the context of the Roman Empire, what's happening, or maybe the ancient Near East that we're going to discuss next week uh, for Old Testament books, things like that, that are always going to be helpful and relevant. When you read the letter to Corinth or the Corinthians, it might help a little bit there. Laodicea in the book of Revelation might help a little bit there to understand some peculiarities of that city and of that people. But again, it's not ultimately essential. The thing about the Gospels is we've gotten so detailed on these studies, like Matthew was written to Jewish people and Mark was written to Roman people. The Gospels circulated around the whole Roman Empire, and they may have been addressed initially to some particular group or groups of people, but they quickly circulated around the entire empire. They, They were intended to be books that were written to everyone, even Paul's letters Paul writes a letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And the entire letter is addressed to Timothy personally, his mm-hmm. grandmother and mother are named personally and individually. And then the very last word in the Greek text is the word you and it's yeah. plural. So clearly Paul's like, okay, other people are reading this. So we, we know that. So the gospels were written to, to all Christians at the Roman empire, With the gospel of Mark, we do know some things about the readers. And that is they don't know much about Palestine and they don't know much about the Jewish world. So Mark is always, uh, mm-hmm. interpreting, or translating, things. defining terms yeah. uh, like Talitha kum, which means mm-hmm, little girl mm-hmm. arise, uh, things like that. So we have a little bit of a sense that they're more Roman and they're not immersed in a local Palestinian world where Ma- Matthew's gospel seems to be, they're more familiar with Jewish customs and things of that nature. So.
0: so a question on that, could the audience, especially with something like the gospel of Mark, could there be a Roman way of reading it and a Jewish way of reading it if the audience is intended? So for instance, a theme like son of God, Well, that there's a huge Roman background there in terms of the Caesars and and how those guys are viewed to son of God means something in the Roman world, whereas son of God has huge Old Testament background Mm -hmm. and identification in terms of, you know, who Israel is and and Adam and these sorts of things. So could there be, could the audience matter, depending on even how you take a theme like that through one of those? uh, Yeah. So
1: with the gospels, especially since they're written to this larger Roman audience, uh, we certainly have to bring the Roman context into it. So yeah, so th- it matters a little bit to answer that particular question. But we're certainly also understanding the fact that this is a ri- story written to the Christian community.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And because it's written to the Christian community, in other words, they weren't written to, to be evangelistic tools. They're written to, to the Christians to help them understand. And the Jesus story is immersed in that Old Testament story, as we'll discuss next week with Dr. Broadhurst. It's a, it's a story that's immersed in this Israel story. So there, there's probably a little bit of both and you'll see scholars who write books on, well, Oh, it's all about the Roman world. Oh, mm-hmm. it's all about the Jewish world. Well, it's probably a little bit of both. So yeah, it's relevant there.
0: Well, and even there, it was written to the Christian community. And what we should not do is import our modern understanding yes. of there's Christians. And then there's Jews because the early Christians yeah, were Jews and, and Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism in a sense.
1: Yeah. Christianity has not made a divorce from Judaism until at least the end of the first century so i just wrote a chapter that's coming up in a book uh, sometime this year on was the author of the book of revelation was john the author of, book, of the book of revelation was he anti-semitic mm. because he says in revelation 2 9 and revelation 3 9 mm-hmm. those who say they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan well, that sounds really anti-semitic and part of one of my points is like hey this is an in-house dispute this is jews against jews and so when when a jew says something about the synagogue they're not Jesus wasn't an anti-Semitic when he railed against uh, the Pharisees and religious leaders. And the best way to illustrate that is say, if they are anti-Semitic, then so is Isaiah and mm-hmm. so is Ezekiel and mm-hmm. so is the prophet, because they really make these strong terms about the Jewish people in the Jewish world, but it's an inner jewish faith. It's an inner jewish uh, dialogue or conversation now.
0: It's a self-critique. And so you're allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. And you're, and you're allowed to do that. So very, okay. very good point.
0: So let's go a little deeper into the gospel market itself than uh mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you think, you know, we should know as, you know, while we're reading, while we're studying, what are the things that are going to enhance our understanding
1: of it? Yeah. All right. So this is where we're going to have some fun or I'm going to have some fun again. (laughs) So we've talked about understanding the fact that Mark is portraying Jesus as the son of God. And what does that mean? And that 1, 1, 1539, the centurion says, this is the son of God. We've talked about sandwiches, how Mark tells stories and puts them together for particular purposes and reasons. And then we also mentioned that the gospels were not written as though these events happened in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't, they, they smashed material together for a particular theme or purpose. So Matthew 13 is going to have seven parables. It wasn't like Jesus sat down and goes, Hey guys, it's parable day. So mm-hmm. let me tell you all these parables today. No, Matthew just puts them all together. Uh, so when you see what Wait, is that happened, Matthew or Luke, that's uh, Matthew 13 has this. Oh, oh, cause in, in Luke, it, he does a
0: so, cause Luke does a similar thing where he, he pushes all his, uh, you know, a lot of the parables in that middle section from what, like chapter 10 through yeah. 17 or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly And, and Luke has all the parables or more, mm-hmm. more of them in Luke. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and Luke is actually really complex. The mm-hmm. chapter breaks don't do you justice at all for Luke, but we won't be yeah. able to, we'll do that a little bit. So the, the thing I want to point out now is this, the genius of the biblical writers and the way they crafted their stories and the way they put things together in blocks. And that's what we said. I think in week one was, Hey, look, if you're doing the devotional guide, that's great. And you read chapter one today, and then tomorrow you read chapter two, but kind of go back and remind yourself what chapter one was about, because it might be important for understanding what chapter two is about. So let's open up Mark chapter two, for example, and look at what Mark does. So Mark one, of course, of course, he's setting the context, setting the stage. And in Mark two verses one through chapter three, verse six. So all of chapter two and the first six verses of chapter three, Mark tells stories that he paced together about the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so by the time you get to chapter three, verse six, they want to kill him. So in Mark's gospel, like, oh, well, from the beginning, they're trying to kill him. Well, maybe they weren't trying to kill him or wanting to kill him until the end. We don't really know. John's gospel says it was the raising of Lazarus that was kind of like, that's the final straw. And now we want to kill him for sure. Whatever. But Mark fronts the opposition with the religious leaders and Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. And he tells these stories, but also note these stories. They kind of progress. So the first story is about this paralytic man who they want to bring him in to be healed by Jesus, but there's no room in the house. And he's being carried by four men and they cut a hole in the roof, lower him down. uh, And Jesus turns around and says to the man, speaking about the four men, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the religious are thinking, well, that's blasphemy, but they're thinking this, Mm -hmm. not speaking Who, who can forgive sins, but God alone. Verse seven. So Jesus, being aware of what they were thinking, says, wait a minute. Hey, guys, Well, what do you to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and, and go home? Now, the answer is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I could be wrong, right? I mean, sure, you could say, well, you have to be God to do it. But yeah, but I could also be lying to you right now. I'm just saying your sins are forgiven. You get to heaven someday. You go, hey, that guy told me. You know, what do you mean? I'm not going to So anyways, Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I'm going to do the harder thing take up your mat and walk. So this conflict with the religious leaders was not voiced, not vocalized. They're silent, but they're objecting to what Jesus is doing and questioning who he is. Then we move on in verse 14. uh, Jesus tells this tax collector to follow me. And in verse 15, this is Mark chapter 2. So this is the second episode. In 15, it says, you know, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And of course, they're the outsiders. They're the they're the not in folks. They're the them in car, mm-hmm. as far as the religious leaders are concerned. So tax collectors and sinners. And of course the Pharisees come up and saw that in verse 16, it says they saw that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And they began saying to his disciples. So now they're voicing the opposition of Jesus, but not to Jesus mm-hmm. to the disciples. Hey, why is this man eating with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus hearing this, Jesus replies and like, look, I didn't come for the healthy, but for the, for for those who are sick, I didn't come to call the righteous, but, but sinners. So there's our second one. So now the the opposition was voiced, but it wasn't voiced to Jesus. Then the third, third episode, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting in verse 18. So they come to Jesus and they say in verse 18, Hey, why is it that John's disciples fasted, but your disciples aren't? So now they're voicing the opposition to Jesus, but it's not about Jesus. It's about the disciples. Mm-hmm. About why aren't they fasting? And she's like, hey, guys, look, I'm the bride, I'm the bridegroom. And when I'm here, we're having a wedding feast and, you don't fast during a wedding. But soon I'll be gone and then they'll fast. Then verse 23, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. And this one's really peculiar because it says in verse 24, the Pharisees were saying, hey, why are you doing what's not lawful? They're picking heads of grain. Mm-hmm. And it's apparently it's on the Sabbath. Now, the problem with this is the way Mark's telling the story is, Are they spying on Jesus? Are are they out? We're just going to fall on to see if he does something wrong. We know he's up to no good. We're going to see what it is. And what are Pharisees doing in Galilee? Mm -hmm. Pharisees belong in Jerusalem, right? Around the temple complex. So everything about the story is like, okay, this is really strange. And it's really odd. But now they're challenging Jesus saying, you're doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, of course, says, hey, wait a minute, you know. The Sabbath wasn't made for man, but man was made for the Sabbath, uh, meaning the Sabbath was made to give people rest and to provide for their needs. And oh, by the way, hey, David did this. And he went in the temple and ate, and ate the bread. And therefore, guess what? I'm David. Uh, I'm, I'm better than him. And, and it's, it's okay. Certainly, they're not liking this. But now you can see that the opposition was raised. Vo- they voiced opposition to Jesus about Jesus and his disciples. Mm-hmm. So this increasingness this, uh, is, is going on. Then chapter three, the final straw, a man, they're in a synagogue. This is like, this is like classic. You know, like, like sitting next to Jesus, like Jesus, don't do it. Don't come on. Jesus, don't do it. I know you can do it later. They're watching you. Just come on. Right? Just be good today, Jesus. Right? So they're sitting in a synagogue and uh, it says, in verse two, they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Cause there's a man there with a withered hand. And Jesus says to the man with a withered hand, Hey, rise, which obviously has very significant implications because it's resurrection language. Mm-hmm. Right? And come forward. And he said, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Hmm. So now Jesus is creating the opposition and they have nothing to say. So you can see how Mark is putting these stories together. So there's kind of like an escalation. And you can clearly, these probably did not all happen back to back to back to back over the course of, of a couple of weeks, but over the course of much time. And now Jesus goes ahead and says, oh, you guys are, they kept silent. And in verse five, it says, he looked around at them with anger. Hmm. It's a righteous indignation, right? I'm, I want to do what the whole idea of the Sabbath and of the Jubilee and of the new creation is for God to restore creation and to heal those who are ill and the, to cause the blind to see and to give the poor life and food and, and well-being and The healings of Jesus are a foretaste of the new kingdom. And you guys want the old ways and you guys want this man to be what? No, the Sabbath was made to do this very thing. And so he goes on and heals the man. uh, And he says, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. Now it doesn't say Jesus did anything. Just says the man stretched out his hand and the hand was restored. Like, well, he must've done it. Okay. He didn't do any magical incantations, but I know he did it. Mm -hmm. You can just see this guy seething uh, with anger. And it says the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel as to how they might destroy him. And notice it says with the Herodians. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, Pharisees and Herodians like don't actually work together. They're, they are not in the same political, social, economic, ideological agenda at all. But the Pharisees did get their power, their, their status. Obviously the Sadducees even more so, but from the Herodians. Mm-hmm. And now they have a common enemy and that common enemy is Jesus. And it says, they sought to see how they might destroy him. And that's it. There's your conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders in the gospel of Mark, all right there. So really well-crafted, phenomenal way of telling the story, climaxing with, now they're out to kill him. So uh,
0: enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, so one of the points that you're making though, and this is teaching people how to read the gospel, right. Or how to read right. the Bible. And that's one of the things that we just do in this podcast a lot is we're teaching you how to read. Um, you're, you're saying that, Hey, you, you don't get uh, limited by the structure of the chapters and verses. And this is something that we've talked about before, right. but, but like, you can't go away from that. We need to make sure that overemphasize and, and actually show the application of, of a moment. This is a specific moment of when a chapter and verse division might screw us up. A and even what you're presenting, like not all scholars uh, believe that if, if if you open up five different commentaries or new Testament surveys, you're going to fee- see five different structures or outlines, you know, even the people who created the scholars who created the chapters and verse divisions of our Bibles that we use, this is their perspective on how it should be divided up, yeah, right? Made some mistakes. Yeah, After absolutely. They did
1: a really good job. They did a really good job. But absolutely. They, they missed a few things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean... So there's more to the structure of the outline
0: uh, than just what we have with our chapters and verses. And you've you got to make sure that you're reading over and, and you're overlapping and, and you're not just ending where the chapter ends, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you might need to read it several times and we'll talk a little bit next week. The Bible is this meditation literature that's meant to be read over and over and over again. And each time you kind of get more out of it. So the first time, okay, great. Just kind of read it, the whole gospel, get a feel for the stories, and then maybe go back. And read it again and go okay pay attention to this theme and then maybe go back and say okay i want to pay attention to the, to the theme of discipleship now And what does that mean uh etc so uh, really, now i would say this for most of the literature gospel and mark for example the scholars are going to be fairly uh a high level of agreement mm-hmm. i mean the book of revelation is the one book that nobody agrees sure. on and sure. i've you know, my commentary will have the right answer, but
0: I was going to say, you're adding to that then.
1: (laughs) No, no, I'm, I'm taking everybody else and saying, okay, this is right. This is right. And then you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And here's why I'm obviously right. But uh, I do think I found some things that that no one else has seen before that people have seen before, but they haven't accented Mm -hmm. uh, and stuff like that. So we'll, we'll get to that someday, but uh, with the gospel, Mark, there's quite commonly you divide the gospel into two sections I refrain from using the word two halves mm-hmm. because what we tend to think is the, this is the first half of his ministry. And this is the second half of his ministry. And we put a time designation on them and we don't do that. So you can do this with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is use the moment where Jesus takes the disciples and says, okay, who do you think I am?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This great question. And Peter, of course, uh, they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. You know, okay, who do you think I am? Well, and Peter says, well, you are the Christ that becomes this, Dividing point in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that's reasonable, mm-hmm. and certainly in Mark, maybe more so than even in Matthew and Luke, uh, that moment. And so, it's common to divide the Gospel of Mark between chapter one one through eight twenty six, as the first part, and in that first part is more public ministry of Jesus. He's teaching, he's doing miracles, exorcisms, things of that nature. Then the second part of the gospel is Mark eight twenty seven through 16 verse 8 and and we'll talk about 16 we should talk about that today by the way it's not on my notes make sure we cover the ending of the gospel of mark well where does it actually end Mm -hmm. Um, but uh and that second section now is peter begins with peter's confession of who jesus is you're the christ although he doesn't completely get it because as soon as jesus says okay now great i'm gonna go to jerusalem and die they're like no 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 we can't do that like yeah that's exactly what the christ means Mm -hmm. that second section then is focused on Traveling to Jerusalem, the journey to Jerusalem, and in Mark's gospel, it's definitely a journey to Jerusalem, and being more explicit as he goes with with the disciples, not with the masses. And there are some occasions where there are masses and a public miracle, things of that nature, but it's primarily focused more upon the disciples, um, discipleship, uh, his impending death, what's going to happen in Jerusalem. That way, when it does happen, they're kind of prepared and they kind of know what's happening.
0: But even along with that, you mentioned the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke about how they seem to have like clear sections the gospel of John, which we'll get to in months down the road. It does the same thing. I think where you have, you know, scholars will normally break it up in terms of the book of signs and then the book of glory. Right. Uh, right I know yeah. Gary Burge, that's, that's his theory where uh, like the first 11 chapters are. Demonstrating all the signs Jesus does, he never uses miracles. And then the the last chunk, uh, the last section is it's the the one sign, which is the glorification of Christ mm-hmm. on the the cross. So you know, scholars have different ways of right. breaking these things up, and it will be interesting to see where we want to go with in you know when we explore John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, very good. Yeah. So Mark is a complex work. We looked at this last time where there's these sandwichings that happen you know, th- this is how Mark seems to tell his stories. This is how he intensifies and, and really makes a point on things. Even though you have this twofold, not a two-half, but a two-fold division that's common, th- does this then just give us the key to understanding the story? Is this the way we have to understand it?
1: Yeah, it's certainly fine and helpful if you want to divide the gospel into two sections. The first part is his public ministry with miracles and teachings and things of that nature. And the second part focuses on discipleship and preparation for his traveling to Jerusalem. But Mark is actually more complex than that. And again, the beauty of the gospel is this depth and richness of the gospel. So I think what's probably better to do, look at it geographically. The gospel of Mark certainly has Jesus ministering only in Galilee for the first chunk of the gospel until chapter 11, when he finally enters Jerusalem. And that's mm-hmm. the first time he enter- enters into the city of Jerusalem, as we mentioned. So the first eight chapters, 1-1 through eight twenty one, are focused on his ministry in Galilee. He spends his time up in Galilee, and he teaches there. He goes a little bit across the sea to the, to the Gentile regions, et cetera. And then chapter eight twenty two he begins his journey to Jerusalem. Now, the bad part about that is eight twenty two is the healing of a blind man. Mm-hmm. And the healing of the blind man kind of does seem to relate, what we discussed this last week, with the disciples and the multiplying of the bread do you not yet see or understand? And then Jesus asks, heals the blind man goes, do you yet see? And the guy's like, well, I see people, but they look like trees. Okay. And then he heals them again a second time. And the guy sees everything. And we mentioned the fact that, see, the disciples are getting it, but they don't fully get it yet. They they're seeing things, but not yet fully seeing. And it's the disciples discipleship is happening just like this man's healing did, where it's kind of in stages and that's so you go from the feeding of the multitude in Mark 8, Jesus' explanation of what the feeding means, the healing of a blind man, and then the question of, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, which means they see. Ah, but as soon as Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die, Peter rebukes him. Ah, they don't really, he doesn't see clearly. So you do want to connect this healing of the blind man. But at the same time here, if we look more carefully, here's what's going to happen. If we take the second section... And divide it into two parts, 822 through 1052. So if you're kind of thinking about, uh, kind of listening in, that's okay. But the healing of the blind man in Mark 822, all the way through the end of chapter 10, verse 52, because here's what happens. This section actually uses the word the way seven mm-hmm. times. That's hadas in Greek. And so that's obviously, an in, that's often an indication. Of course, you can kind of make this, go, oh, I found the way seven times. I'm going to make a bracket here. And that's my section. But it actually works. So Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. The word way occurs seven times between 8.22 and 10.52. And the section begins with Jesus healing a blind man in Mark 8.22 through 26. And it ends with Jesus healing a blind man in 10.46 through 52. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's a framing. That's an often what we might call an inclusio. He makes Mm -hmm. a statement, or in this case, he does an action. He heals a blind man and he heals another blind man. Now, in the middle of that, we have three sections. So 8.22 through 10.52 begins with healing of blind man, ends with the story of healing of blind man, And in the middle are three sections. And the three sections are easily marked because they all begin with Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die. It begins in Mark 8 verse 31. It says, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. That's Mark 8, verse 31. Now let's go down to Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, again, Mark 9, verse 31, it says, he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is is to be delivered in the hands of men they will kill him. And when he's been raised, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. And I skipped, by the way, in Mark's account, Mark 8, when he says, "Uh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die and, and, and rise again. And then it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him in verse 32. So that's Mark chapter eight. So Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. The disciples don't understand. And Peter rebukes him. And Mark nine, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And the disciples don't understand. And did they not understand? They were afraid to ask him. I love that. Like, what is, what is rising from the dead? I don't know. You ask. Him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. Why would I? No, you ask him. Right. Scared cat, I double dog dare you. Right. And, they even probably triple dog dared and they still probably didn't even do it. It's crazy, it's amazing. But uh, then we go on to chapter 10 and it's verse 32 this time. So Mark 8:31, 931 9, 31, and 10:32. And it says they were going up to, on the road to Jerusalem. So now they're, they're getting towards Jerusalem, They're going on the road up. right It's a 17 mile hike up Jerusalem from Jericho. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful and he took the twelve aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen. Verse 33, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, the scribes. They're going to condemn him to death. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him. And three days later, he'll rise again. Three times, he explains to the disciples privately, I'm going to to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. And basically, he becomes more and more explicit in each time. Certainly the third time, they're going to mock me, spit on me, scourge me, kill me. And three days later, I'll rise again. Now, the next story, James and John say, hey, Jesus, when we get to Jerusalem, can you do us a favor? Can we sit on your right and on your left? Which means you're going to go to Jerusalem and be enthroned, and we want to sit on your right and on your left, not realizing that being enthroned means on the cross,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and being on his right and on his left are the two thieves, mm-hmm. and you don't want those seats, meaning they don't understand again. So three times, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and the disciples don't understand. It seems that this is what's going on, and then what happens after that, in each of these three sections, is Jesus explains the way of the cross. So Mark eight thirty one, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. Eight thirty two through thirty three, Peter rebukes him and says, "No, that's not going to happen," and Jesus says, "If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me." And then Mark nine thirty and thirty one, he says, "I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die," the disciples don't understand, and then Jesus says, "This is the way of the cross," and then in Mark chapter ten, and we'll look at this section now. It says, he predicts that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. The disciples still don't understand because they say, can we sit on your right and on your left? And then Jesus says this, Mark 10, verse 42 says, you know, those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to serve, but to be served but did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, the cross, the way of discipleship is the way of the cross. And then what does he do? He heals a blind man. Do you see? Absolutely. I see. So I think that is definitely a distinct section and it kind of doesn't work because 822 kind of belongs in the first section before Jesus says, who do you think I am? but it really fits and really makes sense. And the reason why I say this now on the podcast is I think this is an extremely essential thing for understanding the gospel of Mark. What does it mean to be a disciple? Mm -hmm. It means taking up your cross and following me, the way of the Messiah, the way of the, I am the Christ. You got it right, Peter. I am the Christ. And what that means is I'm going to suffer for the people. And then I'm going to ask you to go and do thou Likewise. And I think that really accents that. So we could read these stories and go, oh, that's a really cool verse. Take up your cross and follow me. No, three times. And the final time is I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And that's what we're called to do as well. So uh, I think that's great. I think that's, uh, like I said, I'm having fun. I hope you are. (laughs) So the
0: next section we need to talk about is discipleship because we're leading there. But one thing that I'm thinking of just even as just another way of reading Mark, as you're uh, demonstrating this kind of trifold way in which, Jesus predicts his passion. The d- disciples don't understand, and then he teaches the way of the cross, and that happens a, a couple different times. Is that similar to what seems to be happening in the beginning of Mark's gospel, where Jesus will, you know, preach, he'll proclaim the the, the kingdom of God, he'll call the disciples, and then he'll demonstrate his authority by performing a miracle, and that like that sequence kind of happens. It seems to happen at the beginning of the story as well.
1: I haven't thought about that. I'm sure that's probably there. I'd have to look at that and see if that play, how how often that plays out.
0: Yeah, because I think that happens a few times in the yeah. beginning as he's getting his ministry going. Like that same type of sequence okay. seems to be happening. Yeah, Maybe it's not that I'm a just- A couple
1: of times Yeah, for it to be intense, right? If it happens once, like, okay, it happened once. It's just the way you yeah. cool the story. But if he does that consistently, like he does here, then we can say, yeah, that's a structural thing that Mark intended you to see. Yeah, but this is what it means, and this is what it looks like, and here's my authority to tell you this is what it looks like. That'd be that'd be really cool. So let's. Yeah,
0: and I don't know do if that, that is a thing. It's just as you're explaining yeah. this, it's making me think back to the beginning of the book. I'm like, I think he might do a similar thing there. Maybe, maybe not. But that that becomes as it a, just a, as we're doing Bible study, we we write down these questions. Oh, I wonder if this is happening here too. And yeah. we go
1: back and we check it out. Yeah. So just just yeah. how we read. So these let, authors. I'm sorry. I was gonna say these authors yeah. are brilliant. Yeah. And they crafted carefully. They didn't just get together and say, like, "Oh, let me write this out." They crafted carefully their works and their masterpieces.
0: Just to finish up on that, C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery: how we think like everything newer is better, and the older mm-hmm. it gets, they're just not as good, and, and so we're, yeah, we're snobs because we think we're better. And th- and that's where it's like these are not merely ancient works of ignorant people who don't know what, who don't know how to make sense of the world, so they're just writing some you know, they're babbling and and whatnot. Like this is amazingly intricate stuff. (laughs) This is so good.
1: It's actually evolutionary snobbery because the idea of evolution is that we're getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And And the point that we'll make even next week is that where we are at in Christianity today, Christendom today, is at a place the church has actually never been at. The reason why Mm -hmm. we have this kind of insights now that they didn't have hundred years ago or during the reformation or during the middle ages is because we have unearthed archeological discoveries Mm -hmm. that have unearthed the ancient background that tells Hey, look for these kinds of things because they're there. And then we go, Oh, okay, cool. And then we have obviously the wealth and the education that we have in the West. That's unbeknown to the history of the world that has afforded people to say, I can make this my occupation and really delve deeply to study these things and that's why we mentioned hey why do we have all these different theories on on the structure because we're still kind of getting there we're mm-hmm. still in the midst of under. we're going to get to a point where we're going to go this one's probably the one that's most accurate mm-hmm. but we haven't gotten there yet
0: Hey, Rob, anything coming up for you that you want to let our friends know about?
1: Yeah, we'll be getting some more information out to you soon, but on February 11th, I'll be participating in a Zoom conference uh, from Evangelicals for Justice. Uh, We'll be doing a session on Friday the 11th, and I'll be presenting on having hard conversations in the church is the title. And my particular section will be having hard conversations in the church on Israel-Palestine. And I know we'll have a couple other presenters, and they'll be doing having hard conversations in the church on other topics that you may or may not agree with, but... How do we have these hard conversations? So we'll get some information on how to sign up and how to get involved with that uh, as soon as we have it.
0: Awesome! Make sure to check out uh, Rob's Facebook page as I'm sure he'll upload that information and uh, try to check out that event. Let's go back to the issue of discipleship, yeah. uh, which is where you left off as you were, you know, giving a summation of chapters eight, nine, and ten. You know, you're saying, "Hey, the whole point of what Jesus is teaching is is teaching us about discipleship." Mark, Mark is just emphatic about this, about how he's deliberately structuring this. So let's just talk about how to read discipleship in Mark.
1: Yeah. So let me kind of get to the application first. If you take anything away from reading gospel of Mark, it will be Mark 834. And if you want to say 834 through 38, memorize it. It's worth it. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And I think that we should live our lives, this is difficult, if not impossible, but nonetheless something that we should strive for. So every day we we begin our day and we end our day with, my aim today is to be a disciple that takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day we go, what did cross-bearing love look like in that situation and did I do it? Or how could I have been better at cross-bearing love in that situation, not in this oppressive, you know beat myself over the head type of thing but yeah. just as this challenge to say how can i how can i go into this meeting that i'm really not a, i'm really not wanting to go into right now and manifest cross-bearing love in the midst of it or mm-hmm. lord help me to manifest cross-bearing love in the midst of this meeting so that i, I can look at that other person in a sense of saying i'm going to lay down my life for you even though i think you're wrong and i'm going to have to tell you why i think you're wrong right even in this midst of this confrontation So I really think that's a a wonderful barometer that we we need to use. Discipleship in the gospel of Mark first begins with being with Jesus. And it starts in Mark chapter three. So the conflict with the Pharisees, and by the way, it's actually more the scribes in the gospel of Mark than it is the Pharisees. Uh, The scribes are more often the the enemies of Jesus. And maybe we can discuss that later. But that conflict reached a climax in Mark three, verse six, with what, let's kill him. Then Jesus turns around and says, okay, great. I'm going to choose my own 12 and it's really intentional. The fact that the leadership of Israel has condemned Jesus and decided that they're going to kill him. And so Jesus says, okay, great. And he calls his own disciples. Very intentional. This, these are the new 12, not replacing the old 12, but the fulfillment of the old, uh, of the old 12. And so he appoints 12 disciples and it says in verse 14, it says he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him. Mm-hmm. There you go. One of the first features of discipleship in the gospel of Mark is being with Jesus. And then he adds, and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. We don't often include that in discipleship. By the way, Discipleship 101, today I'm going to tell you how to preach. Next week, we're going to work on casting out demons. But it's being with Jesus. Now, this is really interesting because it's a story that then follows that. So being with Jesus is is defined as being a disciple. And the story is, in verse 21, it says his own people heard what Jesus was doing, that he couldn't even eat a meal, and they were trying to take custody of him for the, he thought he lost his senses. And Jesus says, wait a minute. And he, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it can't, cannot stand. And then he says, I had to enter the strong man's home in verse 27 and bind him so that I can plunder his property. Then the story then says, oh, by the way, your mother and your brothers have arrived, which is probably a little bit of a sandwich, by the way, because his own people were looking for him. He tells a story about casting out demons. And then he says, your mother and brothers have arrived in verse 31. And they were standing outside. Wow. Mm -hmm. Does outside mean something? Because they weren't with him. They're not with him. Yeah, Yeah. But they're not on the inside. And so they were standing outside and they sent word to Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus. Ah, is the crowd being defined as discipleship? And they said, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around at those who are sitting in the room, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, we'll read this wrong if we go, oh, Jesus is dissing Mary and his brothers. No, that's not what's happening. What Jesus is doing is he's redefining family. Mm-hmm. And family is this critical thing for the ancient world, but it's extremely vital to understand the biblical story. There's two keys, fam- family and land. Those are the two key things. And I wrote about this in my book these brothers of mine and how the new Testament takes the concept of family and the concept of land and the concept of temple and transforms them. But Jesus is simply saying, my family is those who do the will of, of God In their world. Their family is by ethnic kin and there's different levels, like your nuclear, what we might call a nuclear family. And then there's your, your kin, then your tribe, you know, and then there's obviously being, being Jewish and the, the Pharisaic world, the religious world was, we are all sons of Abraham. And Jesus' answer is, those who do the will of my father Mm -hmm. are sons and daughters of Abraham. So it's not dissing of Mary and whatever, it's redefining who actually are the people of God. Because what's happened? The Pharisees have rejected me. They want to kill me. I had to appoint my own 12, the new Israel, the the new people of God. And now who's a part of that new people of God? Well, those who are with him, and who are with him? Well, the ones who do the will of my father. So again, just beautifully uh, well, well done.
0: Which is the same theme that gets played out. Oftentimes we pit Paul and Jesus against each other, right. like they're doing two different theologies. This is literally the point of Galatians 3 and then the first part of Galatians 4, which is, well, who is the heir or the, you know, the son of Abraham? Who is the heir to the offspring? You know, it's those who are in Christ, uh, whether yeah. you're you know, male, female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And so it's, it's just Paul literally teaching Jesus' message there.
1: Yeah, and we'll certainly bring this back up when we get to the uh, letters of the New Testament, but let's mention it now. This is one of the major issues that confronts the early Mm -hmm. Christian movement because they haven't made a radical break from Judaism. Mm -hmm. The Christians thought of themselves as the true Judaism. Jesus is the Messiah of that Moses and the prophets promise would come. This is the fulfillment. And the fulfillment now means we can eat all foods because we're going out to the Gentiles. The fulfillment now means we don't need that temple because Jesus is the temple. The fulfillment means it transcends, it fulfills what was promised. So we don't have to sacrifice any longer because he was the ultimate sacrifice. So you might say things have changed, but for them, that change was in light of Jesus and the fulfillment. But it's not because, well, we became Christians and you guys remain Jews. That hasn't happened yet. And so because of that, the Jews who were embracing Christianity were still being influenced by family members and by kind, go, like, wait a minute, you know, grandma says you got to celebrate Yom Kippur. Grandma says, okay, well, how do I do that in a Christian way? Oh, well you, you don't. And, you know, oh, wait a minute. You guys are eating pork. What you're eating with Gentiles. What are, what are you doing? And there's this, this constant tension that was grabbing these churches. Sometimes they're like, okay, I can find a way to bridge the two. And what I'll do is I'll tell those Gentiles that, that want to eat with us at communion, just go get circumcised. Mm-hmm. And Paul's like, if you make them do that to become Jewish, you're, you're nullifying the cross. I mean, for Paul, this like, you're saying there are, two, there are two levels of Christians. There are us, the Jews, and those who are circumcised. And then there are they, the Gentiles. And unless you become like us, and Paul's like, no, we can't do that. We're all one in Christ Jesus, neither slave nor free, male nor female, uh, you know, Jew or Gentile. And so this becomes a, a huge issue. And certainly it's there with Jesus, and Jesus is the one who starts it.
0: Thank all God right. for making all foods clean.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So you can go get your pork butt off the barbecue. Now. Exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, so just so you know, Vinny's cooking a pork butt right now while we're doing this yes. podcast. Whatever.
0: I I started at two in the morning, and yeah, I, I'm going to feed my department at church today. There, right so now. So I'm just like, like Jesus. It, it, hey, you feed them, right? <laughs> yeah, and right. that's what I did. I I started smoking a pork butt at two a.m. and at noon today I will feed the pastors in my department.
1: Yeah, but can you pick up 12 baths of the broken pieces when you're done? No, they're going to clean up the mess. Okay, (laughs) here we go. So discipleship means to be with Jesus. It also means to follow Jesus. And the word akalutheo, which means to uh, to follow, is actually interesting to trace to uh, to the gospel of Mark and how it's used. There's some interesting episodes where Jesus tells the disciples who are sitting on a boat and they're fishing, hey guys, follow me. And they jump out of the boat and follow him. Like no questions asked. And we're going to save that for the gospel of John. And then he walks by a tax collector's booth and sees Levi, who we suspect is actually Matthew, or not actually Matthew, but an alternative name. And he says, hey, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And really interesting is Mark chapter 2, verse 15. It says, he was reclining at the table in Matthew or Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners, this is Mark two 15, were dining with Jesus and, and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Ah. Task collectors and sinners were following him. And then of course, Mark 8 verse 34 says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus is the epitome of discipleship. And certainly sure. Okay. I'll go there, Vinny. The book of revelation says, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. I was actually just going to ask that. And this is even a plug, but why yeah. did you title that book? Follow me or following the follow yeah. the lamb. Because Revelation 14, four says the mm-hmm. people of God are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And the key with that meaning, and thank you for the plug, uh, it's available on amazon.com. I'm just kidding. Right. I get a lot of
0: royalties <laughs> and kickbacks. Yeah, but, I get sells, like so eight, that's eight why. cents
1: a book. So don't worry about it. So I get I three cents. What, so you yeah. might get yeah, three cents, whatever I can write <laughs> off all my taxes now. And actually I don't make enough to pay taxes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. The key thing with, with follow me in Revelation 14 is this, is it doesn't mean like just go wherever he goes. It means go to the cross like he went to the cross. That is the theme in the book of revelation. That's why, again, I'll say I'm telling my commentary revelation, a love story, because going to the cross for the sake of the other is the epitome of love.
0: All right. So Mark, he said some interesting things as well throughout in a couple spots, at least regarding the S E A. So what's the significance of this? Why does he do this?
1: So this is going to be a topic that we can't finish today by any means at all. And we're going to bring in Dr. Broadhurst next week to discuss kind of the Old Testament context of what's happening with the sea and demons, because Jesus casts out demons a lot and he tells them to be silent and things of that nature. So the first thing to note is that the Sea of Galilee is not a sea. It's a lake. It's not a sea. The first time it's ever called a sea is actually in the Gospel of Mark. It's called the Sea of Galilee. And very likely, it's called a sea for a reason, because the sea conjures up all this Old Testament imagery. And you can begin with the the book of Genesis, that the sea was anti-creation. In order for God to create land, animals, and man, he has to separate the seas. He has to part them. It's like God parted the heavens. And when Jesus was being crucified, um, the temple curtain was was being parted. And the, the temple curtain was actually adorned with all kinds of imagery of the heavens and the stars and all this. God's parting the heavens. So he parts the heavens when he was baptized and God spoke, and he parts the heavens when Jesus is on the cross. So also the sea is parted when God creates. Of course, the sea is parted when the Israelites walk through it. And so you see all this imagery. The sea is synonymous with the abode or the abyss. So in the book of Revelation, hell is a a lake of fire, a sea. Uh, Demons come up out of the abyss. It's this bottomless pit. And so in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has some demons And he says, what is your name? And the the demons say, our name is Legion, for we are many. And Legion has a Roman implication. So we know that this Roman background that we mentioned earlier is probably in play here. Now the demons turn around to Jesus and say, this is Mark chapter five, and say, hey, uh, don't send us out of the country. And it says there was a big herd of swine feeding nearby. And the demons said, hey, send us into the swine so that we can enter them. And everyone thinks, oh, well, Jesus kind of honors the request because he sends the demons into the swine. But the swine run down the hillside in, into the sea. The sea is the abyss. It's, it's hell. It's the lake of fire. It's a place of t- whatever you want to call it. This is why Revelation 21.1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Mm-hmm. The sea is where the beast comes up out of, Revelation 13.1. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. The sea is where dragons are in the book of Job, right? Leviathan. And the sea is untamable. Back in the ancient world, if the world was flat and you go off the sea too far, you fall off the world, you die. The sea has all this imagery, so we'll we'll get into that much more next week, uh, talking about the significance of that. But in the Gospel of Mark, just note Jesus crosses the sea three times, calls his disciples off the sea, he teaches the crowd from the sea because there's so much on the land. You know, the disciples are on the sea, but Jesus is on the land. The sea has a significance in the Gospel of Mark, and to unpack that, uh, we're going to need some more background material we'll do next week.
0: All right. So let's wrap this episode up then. And this is kind of wrapping up the discussions you and I have had over the last few weeks. And next week will just be kind of its own masterclass, bringing in something fun. If I were to just walk away from this right now, I would say, okay, things that I know in terms of how to read Mark better, because that's the goal. We're equipping people to say, what are some tools where I'm not going to remember every chapter and every meaning, but what are the things I need to know when I'm reading Mark? And it's going to be things like Mark structures his gospel in a specific kind of way. And we need to watch for those big picture structures. It's not merely that he's just giving all these short little things that are happening. Right. They're constructed in a deliberate way. And I need to, to look for those. And sometimes that might cross chapter divisions. So look for those types of units. Like that's a big one, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And how those units accent the meaning. Mm-hmm. So, oh, conflict with the re- religious leaders, climaxing with... Oh, they want to kill him. Oh, okay. I, I, it starts slowly, but it gets, it gets worse. Okay, cool.
0: So it, it also means then along with that, he uses a technique called sandwiching, mm-hmm. which means I'm not just reading each one of those. I think you use the word in the first episode pericope, oh, uh, okay. like a, a self-contained, I think you used that word. Didn't you? Uh, I don't,
1: I don't know if I did or you did, but that, that's fine. What, so what is it? That's, that's so it's like a, a self-contained story, right? Yeah. yeah. A unit, so- a section.
0: Yeah. 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 So it's not merely about reading, especially if you are are looking in your Bible and they, they supply Mm -hmm. uh, like a subheading, like, Oh, the purpose of the parables, a a lamp under a basket, like, okay. It's not just about reading that little section, but it's knowing that like the, the key to understanding one of those sections might be to say, okay, what happened before and after that, Mm -hmm. um, which goes along with looking at the bigger structure, but specifically how Mark uses sandwiching where you don't necessarily, you're not going to find that in the other gospels as much as, as you'll find it here
1: with sandwiching
0: yeah yeah correct yeah yeah Yeah. and so we we learned that word inclusio or a bookend yeah where sometimes which is a similar idea where where you might start and stop with something and that helps us understand that hey this is part of a unit (laughs) and so pay attention to what's happening here
1: right yeah and all the books of the new testament old testament do uh, use inclusions yeah Yeah. letters do that uh, a lot actually and
0: that's because there these are were originally meant to be, or they're oral books, the, right? There's the, something heard. that's read, and so it's it's a you you would you would I remember you emphasizing this a lot in uh, our Greek class uh, when you taught Greek grammar how these are ways to uh, help us earmark or I forget the term you use. So oh you know that oh it pings us to know that okay this the the start of a section or the end of yeah a section. okay yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: to look at how the major emphasis the point of all this is discipleship mm. right and, and discipleship means. Taking up your cross, following Jesus, right. living the way he lived. It's not merely yeah. claiming him, but it's actually having allegiance and looking like him. right yeah,
1: yeah yeah and he is the son of Son of God, mm-hmm. right? the creator of all things and the true king. Uh, so the son of God in a Roman world is uh, I'm Caesar and you're not and mm-hmm. and get used to this guys because I'm the king of this world, and he's going to bring his kingdom here. and this is what discipleship people look like in the midst of it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, But other things
0: that you could think of that we would say, Hey, these are the things to remember in Mark's gospel.
1: I think those are the key ones. Uh, Kingship of Christ, who he is being a disciple and following him and being transformed. And that discipleship is the way of suffering and the way of the cross for the sake of the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are some of the keys that are there. So. Yeah. And yeah, even good.
0: in kingship, like this is how Mark begins the gospel literally in, in, in his first couple of verses. And the kingship is directly related to the Old Testament. He's quoting mm. the prophets, which we talked about, Isaiah and Malachi and yeah. Exodus and those themes. It's not this new thing that's starting. It's the completion. It's it's Israel's Messiah, covenantal God of Israel, who is, who is sending this Messiah to complete things to inaugurate his kingdom, which yeah. has been promised for centuries we- in the past.
1: Excuse me. And maybe we'll add to that, that in this kingdom is for the nations. It's not just for you and the people of God aren't going to be defined any longer by simply by this ethnicity, but by faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to the father and welcoming in the nations. And so the sacrificial love for the sake of the other is, Hey, he walked in the temple and he didn't see anything and he left, he didn't see any fruit and he left. And so he cursed the fig tree. Ah, because my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is an easy gospel, man. Why are you saying yeah, it's complex? That's why we, that's we it. started
1: with it because we figured we'll just get harder <laughs> as we go. We want to kind of l- lesson A. Okay. Yeah. Ready for third grade. Let's this is low grade. shelf. Yeah. 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 Matthew might be like fifth grader. So if you're in, uh, ready for fifth grade, we'll do Matthew.
0: Yeah. Nice.
1: So, All right. Yeah. Cool.
0: Hey. Awesome stuff. I, I'm glad you were so excited. Are you going to be as excited for Matthew as you were for, uh, no, Mark? no, really. It's all about Mark. Yeah. So it is downhill. Yeah.
1: You, yeah. So you
0: said you get most excited in the third grade
1: and then f- uh, fifth grade,
0: you're just not excited. Yeah, either. Cause
1: you get like lollipops in the third grade, like fifth grade, like <laughs> bring your own kid, dude, grow up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, Hey, we hope everyone is enjoying this. Please make sure to send in questions or comments to contact Rob in a number of different ways on Facebook or email or, uh, the other ways. I don't know. I don't, on the, the website,
1: ways? if you go to the contact me page on the truth.com website, you can contact us and ask questions. Uh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And we'd love to hear from you and hear how this is helping you or maybe more questions that bring, uh, you know, are, are spurred up and that might help us as we continue on in the series, how to read the New Testament. So cool. All right. Well, hey, everyone join us next week. We're going to have an awesome time as we bring in uh, Dr. Jace. That's good, man. I'm looking forward to that conversation. That's going to be a really good one. So see everyone next week and catch you later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.